morning, everyone. Welcome to worship. So glad you've decided to join us in this warm place. And hopefully it's warm, not just in terms of temperature, but in terms of relationships, in terms of love. We've got the year off to a really cool start. Uh, if you were watching the Hope 360 video in, in the middle of this service, you saw we welcomed a whole bunch of new members to Hope uh, last weekend. We also had the opportunity to extend an invitation to people to be baptized, and we're praising God for 25 people who took that step of faith to be baptized last weekend. We're praising God. We're Okay, yeah, I thought so. We're praising God for 25 people who are baptized. We also extended an invitation to renew your faith or to uh, reaffirm your baptism. And I just want to be clear, we don't re-baptize people. Uh, first baptism is good enough, that one takes. But we extend the invitation to renew your baptism or uh, to reaffirm it because Scripture says God's mercies are new every morning. And great men and women of faith like Martin Luther have said, every day I have to return to the foot of the cross. I can't make it through a single day without relying on God's grace and God's mercy. And so we do that. We're praising God for 91 people who came forward for that renewal of their baptism. And if you were not here for that last weekend, if you missed it, or if you were here and you were wishing you had gotten in line for baptism or for renewal, don't worry, it's not too late. You really didn't miss anything. You can always uh, talk to us about that. We'd be happy to talk with you about uh, making that part of your next step uh, as it comes to faith. We started a new message series last weekend called Genesis, a binge-worthy Bible series. We're taking a look at this first book of the Bible uh, over the course of about six weeks, and we're trying to do it in, in a creative way. How do we connect the men and women and families that we read about in Genesis to our lives and, and present day? And so we're connecting it to some binge-worthy TV shows. Last week, it was Breaking Bad. Uh, God creates the world, and God calls everything good, but it doesn't take very long before things start breaking bad. This week, it's Arrested Development, and that uh, clip we just watched at the beginning of the services from that sitcom, it was on the air, uh, I think four seasons of Arrested Development. It tells the story of the Bluth family, and the Bluth, uh, they put the word fun in dysfunctional, just a ridiculous kind of family dynamics going on there. There were two brothers, Job and Michael, that you saw in that clip. They have a sibling rivalry all throughout the series. Who's better? Who's the favorite? Who gets to take over the family business when dad gets thrown in prison? You know, normal family stuff like that. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Normal family stuff. I don't know what your family is like. I don't know what the families of the people in your circles are like, but when we look at the pages of the Bible and we try to apply that phrase, normal family stuff, one of the things that causes us to do is maybe, do we have to redefine what normal family stuff is? Open your Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be hanging out today. And Genesis chapter 4, I think even if this is your first time at church or if you've never opened a Bible before, you're probably familiar with this story. Two brothers who have a bit of a sibling rivalry and it turns uh, murderous. And just think about that. By the time we get four chapters into the Bible, there's already a homicide. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot to go If we're looking for a motive to this murder, the Bible doesn't actually give us a whole lot to go on, but we're going to try to dig in a little bit deeper and see if we can uncover some clues what is going on in this story? Why does this happen? So, Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. With the Lord's help, I've produced a man. It's kind of a dramatic uh, 
written account of the birth of, of this son, Cain, and it makes sense that it would be. A lot of times in life, do you, do you have, have you ever noticed this, where people go through something that's actually a pretty common human occurrence, but they're acting like they're the first person in the history of the world who has gone through that experience? You ever, yeah, anyway. Eve is the first person who ever went through this experience. Can you imagine? She doesn't have the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I mean, what, is she, what must she have been thinking over the course of those nine months, and then all of a sudden, a baby is produced, a man is produced. And so it's this worshipful proclamation. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible thing for her. We kind of sometimes, I think, throw around the phrase flippantly, that childbirth is a, is a miracle, but it absolutely is a miracle. You think of everything that has to go right in order for a child to be born. It's, it's miraculous, and you talk to people, men and women, who are wanting to be parents, and it seems like everything is going wrong, and you realize there's nothing flippant about any childbirth. There's nothing flippant about, it's completely miraculous. Eve has that experience. She says, with the Lord's help, I've produced a man. That's the way the Bible describes the yeah, I put the wrong verse. It's actually verse 1. But that's the way the Bible describes... That's why I told you to bring your Bibles with you so that you can make sure I'm not just tricking you. That's the way the Bible describes the birth of Adam and Eve's first son. Do you have any firstborns in the room? Anybody? Firstborn? Good for you. I'm a secondborn. Any secondborns in the room? Yeah, secondborns. So, what do you suppose the account of the secondborn looks like in the Scriptures? How about we just read it out loud together? Let, let's read this. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. Wah, 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 wah. Where's the worshipful proclamation? Once again, the Lord Almighty has reached down from heaven and has given me birth, a son. It's not there. There's nothing. And poor Cain, right? How is he described? His brother. I never really had a nickname. The only time I had a nickname in high school for a little bit, one of my uh, coaches called me Brother Reigns because he knew my brother Sean, but he couldn't remember my name, so he just called me Brother Reigns. <laughs> Second born. I mean, maybe I'm overreacting a little bit. But what I want you to see is very clearly there's in Scripture a very different account as it comes to the birth of the firstborn compared to the secondborn. And so I just want to ask you to keep that in mind. Is it possible that just going on the way it describes those two births, is it possible that these parents, Adam and Eve, might have treated Cain, the firstborn, differently than they treated Abel, the secondborn? Is it, is it possible? I think it's possible. I don't think it's a whole lot of a stretch. And, and then you add on top of that what we know from the rest of the Old Testament. Firstborn son is a really important role in the scriptures. And not just in the Bible, but in ancient culture in, in general. If the firstborn son is not the favorite, it stands out. It is noteworthy. You think about uh, several generations later when the prophet Samuel is going to Bethlehem to the home of a man named Jesse because he's going to find one of Jesse's sons to anoint to be the next king of the nation of Israel. And they have all the sons, all the brothers line up, oldest to youngest. Oldest? Nope, that's not the one. That's not the one. They keep going down. Go through everywhere. It's not the one. And everyone is shocked. It's like the only brother we have left is the youngest brother, David. And everybody knows David's not going to be the one God wants. He's out in the fields with, with the sheep. But David's absolutely the one God wants. And it's noteworthy. It stands out because he's not the firstborn. He's not the one you would normally expect God to pick. 
Back to our story in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel grow up, and Cain becomes a farmer. He raises crops. Abel becomes a shepherd. Uh, He raises flocks of sheep. And then we get back to the story in verse 3. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of his firstborn lambs from his flock. I think at first glance, there's nothing really dramatic or noteworthy going on there, right? Uh, You you see, maybe there's a little bit of a a difference between what Cain does and what Abel does. It says Cain presented some of his crops. Abel brought the best of his flock. So there's a little bit of a difference there. But really, I think you would look at this and you would think, they're they're doing the same thing that their mom does, right? Um, With the Lord's help, I've produced a man. They're saying at the end of a, a season, a harvest season, with the Lord's help, Uh, We've been able to produce a crop. With the Lord's help, our flock has grown, and we just want to thank God for his role in all of that by giving him this offering. doesn't seem like anything too dramatic going on, and so it's a little surprising what we read next. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Why? Why why does God not accept it? I mean, Maybe you would say, well, that's what I would do. I mean, if I was God, I much prefer a barbecue over a fruit basket, but there's nothing in the text that actually says that was God's preference. Why does God accept Abel but not accept Cain and his gift? And Cain's response to it is he's very upset. He's depressed. The Lord says to him, watch out, be careful, sin's crouching at the door. And Cain is not careful. Invites his brother over, they go out to the field, And he kills his brother. And then God shows up looking for them, looking for Cain. Cain, where is your brother? And let's read out loud together uh, the way Cain replies. It's at the bottom of the screen. Read it with me. I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? It's a familiar story, but try to peel away the familiarity for a second. Isn't it also a confusing story? What are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to be learning about who God is, God's character? What are we supposed to be learning about ourselves, and what does it mean to live as God's people? This is one of those places in scriptures, I'm not sure the translators do us as big a favor as they maybe could have, the way they translate this. So let's dig in a little deeper, look a little more closely What might actually be going on here? We're going to look at three verses in particular, these verses 4 and 5, and then later, verse 9, we'll look at a little bit of the original language. So, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. The Hebrew word uh, that gets translated accepted, the root word is sha'ah. Sha'ah shows up all over the place in the Old Testament. Here's a list of some of the ways it gets translated in the Old Testament. Gaze, regard, look. Pay attention. Turn your eyes, turn your gaze, turn your gaze away. And so sometimes the way it gets translated is the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his gift or the Lord did not regard Cain and his gift. What I want you to see is all of these words and and these phrases, they're kind of associated with our eyes, with vision, with sight, with how we are looking or where we are looking. Keep that in mind when we skip down to verse 9. Verse 9 is where Cain asks this question to God, am I my brother's guardian? And the Hebrew word that gets translated guardian, the the root word there is shamar. Here's a list of some of the ways it gets translated in the Old Testament. 
care, keep, observe, pay attention. Both of those words get translated pay attention sometimes. Heed, guard, regard, watch. So sometimes, maybe the way you've heard this phrase before is, am I my brother's keeper? That's one of the translations for it. It's like Cain is asking God, is it, is it really part of my job description to shamar my brother? Am I really supposed to care for him, keep him, observe him, pay attention to him, watch out for him? And remember, Cain is asking this question after he has killed his brother. Is it possible this was also Cain's attitude toward his brother before he killed him? I mean, think about this. We have this description of the account. Here's how Cain's birth goes down. Here's how Abel's birth goes down. Is it possible that Cain's parents raised him in a family system where they thought a lot more of Cain? Cain is great, Cain is awesome, and Abel is, I don't know, sort of an afterthought. Is it possible that growing up in a family system like that turned Cain into a a young man, an adult who was a little self-absorbed, who was used to getting his own way, who wasn't very good at taking no for an answer? Is it possible that when Cain thought of his brother Abel, he thought of him more as a bother than a brother? Is it possible that when God says, I do not accept your offering, I do not look with regard on your offering, is it possible God's doing that as a way of saying to Cain, it's because you're not looking with regard on your brother. You're not accepting your brother through the course of his life. And so by the time we get to verse 9, where God's asking, where's your brother? And Cain is responding, am I my brother's keeper? God's like, yeah, that's right, you're not. You haven't been his entire life. And look what has happened as a result. Here's God's response to this. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. If you ever wonder, am I my brother's keeper, this passage is God trying to make it as clear as he possibly can. I'm my brother's keeper. I'm my sister's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. And God says, I am your keeper. There's a priestly blessing that I'm guessing many of you have heard at the end of a worship service before. The first place it shows up in Scripture is in Numbers chapter 6. Moses is leading the people of Israel to the promised land, and along the way they stop at Mount Sinai to get the commandments and uh, the instructions from God on how to live together as God's people, how to relate to God, how to relate to one another, instructions for worship, that sort of thing. And part of the instructions... God gives to Moses, he says, I want you, Moses, to tell your brother Aaron and his sons, and remember, they are the priestly class, their descendants become the priests of the nation of Israel. I want you to tell the priests, I want them to bless the people of Israel on a regular basis, and here's what the blessing sounds like. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Don't need a show of hands, but I'm guessing everyone in this room would like the Lord to bless them. Here's God saying, this is what it looks like to bless you. You don't need to ask for it. I'm doing it. The Lord blesses you by keeping you. And the word there is shamar. 
the same word that Cain uses when he asks, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, God says, I'm watching you, I'm observing you, I'm paying attention to you. I'm turning my face toward you, turning my gaze toward you. The Lord bless you, make his face shine on you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. This is good news for you and for me. This is who our God is. This is what God is up to in our lives. And it's not just good news for you and for me. God wants to bless us in order that we would be a blessing to the people around us. God wants us to be our brother's keeper. God wants us to shamar the people around us to bless them by turning our gaze toward them, turning our face toward them, paying attention to them, observing them. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, absolutely. And when we stop being our brother's keeper, or if we never start being our brother's keeper, we play a role in arresting the development of the kingdom of God on this earth. Our theme at Hope this year is on a mission from God. I mean, every year we're on a mission from God, but we're really focusing in on it this year. On a mission from God, our mission is reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Let's say that together. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Embedded in our mission is this idea of being our brother's keeper. Not just our brother's keeper, not just our sister's keeper, our neighbor's keeper. What's the love that we're supposed to reach out and share? Love of God and love of neighbor. We're our neighbor's keeper. One of my favorite authors is a pastor named John Ortberg. He's at a church in the San Francisco area. Wrote a book, I think a couple decades ago now, called Love Beyond Reason. It was re-released with a new title, Life-Changing Love. Now, the second chapter is the same in both editions. It's called Love Pays Attention. Love Pays Attention. Here's what Ortberg writes. If you want to do the work of God, we're on a mission from God. If you want to carry out the mission God has given you, pay attention to people. Notice them, especially the people nobody else notices. Why, why would John Ortberg say this is what it means to do the work of God? To pay attention to people and to notice the people nobody else notices? Because he took a look at Jesus and that's how Jesus lives his life. Always, always, Jesus is noticing people that had gone unnoticed. Jesus is observing and watching and paying attention to people who were often overlooked, literally overlooked. For the next part of the message, I'm going to need you all to stand up. So let's all stand up, and I'm going to need one volunteer. Anyone want to be a volunteer for this part of the message? Anyone at all? You don't have to say anything. If you don't volunteer, I will call on you. <laughs> Morgan, thank you for volunteering. Morgan, come on up. Uh, you don't have to say anything. Actually, you don't have to come up. This is Morgan. And what you're going to do, I'm going to read a Bible story for everybody else. While I'm reading the Bible story, you just kind of walk up and down the aisles of the worship center. You think you can do that? Here's the only catch. I want you to walk kind of bent over like this. You think you can do that? Okay, start going. Thank you, Morgan, for volunteering. <laughs> uh, okay. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. One Sabbath day as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. So those of you who are standing up straight, can you see Morgan who's walking around? Can you see her? Bend over a little more. There you are. You're fine. It's like a workout. I know. 
You can see her, you can see her, but you have to be purposeful about it. You have to work at it. You have to pay attention. You have to turn your face toward Morgan, or she would be easy to miss, right? She would be easy to look over. She's going to keep walking. Just a little bit more to the story, Morgan. <laughs> Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. You can stand up, Morgan. Thank you, and you can go to your seat. You did a great job. I may volunteer you again sometime. This will be great. Everyone can sit down. Where were you 18 years ago? Can you imagine not being able to stand up straight for 18 years? And then everything changes for this woman when Jesus saw her, noticed her, paid attention to her. It leads to the place where Jesus is able to touch her. It leads to the place where she's able to heal. It leads to the place where she's able to praise and worship God in a way that she had never done it before. Who are you not seeing these days? Who are the people in your family who would benefit if you really began to pay attention? Or at work, or at school, in your classrooms, in your neighborhood? Love pays attention. Love notices people who might typically be overlooked. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. And as we take that responsibility on our shoulders to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, our neighbor's keeper, it changes the relational dynamic with the people closest to us, but it can also begin to change social structures. There's a whole lot of Iowa State Cyclone fans here at Hope Ankeny. It was a lot of fun for me a couple of weeks ago to watch your social media feeds as many of you made the trek down to Memphis following the football team to go to uh, the Liberty Bowl. And it was a highlight of the week for the football team, and I think also for many of the fans who went down there, they were able to visit the National Civil Rights Museum as part of that trip. Here's what Alan Lazard, the record-breaking receiver, had to say about it. My teammates and I are grateful to attend the museum and to honor the great ones before us that have sacrificed their lives for the greater good of society. It's a three-day weekend. Everybody loves that. Uh, tomorrow is a holiday where we remember and we honor the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He's a great civil rights leader, but before he was a civil rights leader, he was a preacher. Continued to be a preacher even during the civil rights movement. He has a lot of things to say about this idea. What does it mean to be my brother's keeper? Take a look. Perspective is such a powerful thing, isn't it? One way of looking at the civil rights movement was to say it's all about provocation and disturbing the peace. Another way of looking at it, another perspective says, no, it's, it's desegregation. It's how can you disturb the peace when there is no peace? So Martin Luther King Jr. would say on a regular basis, wherever there is inequality, injustice, oppression in, in any society, everyone's to blame. No, no one's blameless. Why? Because we all bear a responsibility to our fellow man. I'm my brother's keeper. I'm my sister's keeper. I'm my neighbor's keeper. 
and so are you. We're the church, and God has given us a mission. Reach out to the world around us, share the love of Jesus Christ, pay attention, observe, watch, regard, turn your face towards those maybe who are being overlooked or situations, circumstances that are going unnoticed. It's powerful what can happen when we start to do that. Our mission here at Hope is to reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. We also have a vision. We also have values, core values that guide us as a church. One of our core values is following Jesus is a growing experience. We believe healthy things grow. And the healthy growth that we're praying for God to bring about in this church is growth that's both deep and wide. When we talk about wide growth, we're simply talking about more and more people being a part of what God is doing here all the time, and we are seeing that happen. Hello to those of you sitting in overflow. Every week at 9.15, we have people sitting in overflow. So we're growing wider, more and more people, and this month I've put together a team of people. I'm calling it the Phase 2 team, and we're going to start meeting in in a couple of weeks to prayerfully and creatively ask God to show us how do we create more room for more people to be a part of what you are doing here, what God is doing here. And I would ask all of you, even if you're not on that team, be praying for us, asking God to show us the way forward, asking God to show us where do we go from here. Healthy growth is deep and wide. Deep growth is all about maturity. What does it look like to be people who are taking that next step, maturing as followers of Jesus, maturing as disciples? We never arrive We never get it all figured out. There's always a next step of growth for all of us. We learn more and more all the time how to walk the way Jesus walked. And so the question of discipleship is this same question. Where do we go from here? What's my next step of faith? Last year of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. rented a house in uh, Jamaica and he didn't have a phone and he was just focused on trying to finish a manuscript for what would be his final book. The title of the book, Where Do We Go From Here? And many of the ideas in that book come from a speech he gave in August of 1967 in Atlanta uh, for a gathering of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And I want you to listen to a couple of minutes of Dr. King speaking or preaching and just remember this question we're trying to seek an answer to, where do we go from here? Now when I say question in the whole society, it means ultimately coming to see the problem of racism, the problem of economic exploitation, and the problem of war all tied together. These are the triple evils that are interrelated. And if you will let me be a preacher just a little bit, one day, one night a juror came to Jesus. He wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down on the kind of isolated approach of what you shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. 
He said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic. That if a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of just getting bogged down on one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's a preacher. He goes on in that talk to say, yes, individuals need to be born again, but so do groups of people. Churches need to be born again. And communities need to be born again. And in the heart of the Deep South, in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King Jr. was bold enough to say, America needs to be born again. Listening and reading the thoughts and the words of Martin Luther King Jr. this week as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but just be blown away by the power of the mission God has given his church. There are huge problems and challenges in every generation. How do we meet those challenges? How do we face them? How do we overcome them? We do it the same way in our generation that they did in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement, one person at a time, making the decision, I'm going to take on the responsibility of being my brother's keeper. And that's going to start to change things for the people close to us, but there will also be a ripple effect. And slowly, surely, over time, the tectonic plates of societal change will start to shift. But again, it begins by asking that question. What is the next step for me? Where do I go from here? 